Would you please call the police out there, somebody? It's out of control here at the limelight. Ladies and gentlemen, they're completely out of hand here at the limelight. Would someone please call the riot squad? Help! Chairman, please clear the aisles. All right, now that was a hold it. That was a terrible display. Now I am very sorry about this. Aren't you ashamed of yourself, ladies and gentlemen? I can only say that the decline and fall of Rome had nothing on. Greenwich Village tonight. I am looking down on a scene of carnage and debauchery. Hear that? The like of which has seldom crossed the ken of man. Evo, listen to this. Hold it, hold it. It's terrible, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm, I just want to apologize for WOR and for Marty Lauren, who runs the limelight down here. This friendly, reliable, this little institution of good cheer here on Seventh Avenue South tries so awfully hard to purvey hamburgers and ketchup and good cheer, and what do we get? Hatred. Well, all right. Now I'm going to put it to a vote. Do you want me to stay on the air? Do you want me to continue or not? Well, I can see, ladies and gentlemen, that I have been outvoted. I'm about to go off the air here now. It's gotten completely out of hand. My replacement, John Gambling, will be here. <laughs> He and Martha Dean are going to do a tap dance. <laughs> And I would only like to say before I leave, I am profoundly disappointed. I am hurt and I am crushed. And I would like to know if there's at least one listener out there. They're the honest ones. You rotten hamburger eaters, sitting down there smugly. You got the price of admission. What about those poor, honest, simple souls that are spinning out their lives out there? Measuring out their lives with coffee spoons, those poor, honest, simple souls out there in Jersey and in Staten Island, who every night hope that the truth is going to come through, and all they get is Lester Smith and the news. Think of those poor people out there. I want to hear from at least one of them who says, "Stay on, Shep. Call us here at the Limelight. What's the number? What?" O R five two two one two. Let's see if there's one listener who'll stand behind me, just one, and then I'll go back in the corner behind. Yeah! Hey! How's that for production? You know who that is? That's the manager of the station. And he is saying, if that son of a gun chickens out, tell him we got a contract that'll bust him in half. <laughs>
There he is. <laughs> oh, yeah, deep down inside of us is that secret fear that one day we're going to fall off that trapeze. <laughs> and down we'll go. All right, do you want me to continue? Ah, yeah. uh, uh. Now, look, why, why don't you do this for me? I'll ask you the question again, and in unison, I want you all to go, Aww. Don't you think that I work awful hard and I should be allowed to continue? Oh, gee, I get nothing from this crowd. I'll tell you, <laughs> I might as well pursue... Wow! I might as... <laughs> Oh, man, this place is swinging tonight. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> well, I might as well tell you that the vote, the vote during the news was that we continue the pursuit of that kernel of guilt and fear that lies within each one of us. Are you still game, gang? Yeah. Hey, okay, well, look, it takes many forms. Now, I only speak for the male of the species. Since that is my problem, I am that. You cannot speak for mankind. You can only speak because I believe that the male and the female are as completely removed in their life and their viewpoint of the world as Saturn and Venus. Two different... Yes, right, I know it. There are a lot of... Ch oh, immediately the phone's going to start ringing and say, what do you got against women? <laughs> Somehow women think they can understand men, but men can't understand women. It's one of the curious myths of our world. But I'll tell you this about a male thing. I wonder how many of you men ever had this, this experience. When you were a kid, I think it all goes back to those days. Almost every male that I ever knew had the cave digging urge. How many of you ever dug a cave? How many men... Oh, I know you did it, but with your boyfriend. How many... How many, how many of you, how many men in this crowd actually dug a cave when they were a kid? Yeah, it's a strange thing. Now, if you're an urban kid, you can't do it. I agree. And so a lot of people who lived in the city are going to say, what do you mean? What's this nut talking about? You give seven boys two acres of empty ground, and they will first start a ball diamond, which will fizzle out. Then they will play a little stickball. And then suddenly somebody will start to dig a hole in the ground. And before long, they're digging a cave. It's a wild experience. It's a great experience. And I remember one time, the biggest cave that we ever were involved in, just keep it off the hook. <laughs> All of us secretly want to get off the hook anyway, so go ahead. Well, I'm a kid. I'm about 10 or 11. This is when the, when the cave digging urge gets its strongest. And remember this, a kid earlier than that just digs holes in the sand. You know the, the, the thing of digging holes? He's only six or seven, he just digs a little hole. By the time he's eight or nine, he thinks in terms of digging a hole and getting into it. Now there's some, a lot of secret things involved in that. I think it goes back to the primal world that we all came from. We are burrowing animals. Man is not a building, he's a burrower. He digs down into the soil. Under the water he goes with his submarines. He's a snorkeler. 
He's a scuba diver. He goes under. How many times have you in, in bed? It's 7 o'clock in the morning. The bells are ringing. And you pull the covers over your head. You know that great feeling of lying under with everything? You know, it's warm and everything in there, you know? And somehow you're in a cave. And you can see the, the light coming through the edges of the tent, you know? And it's a world. It's a cave. You know, we came out of a, out of a world of cave dwellers. And we haven't lost it. There's something comforting, you know, about sitting back there, just sitting there, sort of scrunching down on your haunches, spitting your red eyes, glaring out there into that cold light of the outside world. Well, Flick, Bruner, Schwartz, Martin, and myself one day started to dig a cave. It started very simply. Flick's got a spade. You know, he found a spade. He's digging a hole. And the next thing you know, somebody says, let's make a cave. That was the project. And you know, boys get hung on things like that. I don't know whether girls do or not, but boys get hung and they'll play basketball for six weeks straight, morning, noon, and night. They'll start it at the crack of dawn, play basketball. They'll play basketball until two in the morning. You know that? And then all of a sudden they'll stop. Well, we started the cave hang-up. Flick, Schwartz, Bruner, Martin, myself, we're digging. Every one of us is digging. And it's a deep, sandy country that we're living in. Sand, you could dig it easily, beautifully. And the further we dug down, the colder the sand got, and the wetter it got, and the darker in color it got. And you began to feel that you were down somewhere where people had never been. You were in virgin territory. We made this hole at least seven feet deep and dug a passageway down into it and had a big chamber. It must have been 10 feet square. And over the top of it, we put corrugated tin, cardboard, sticks, sod, built it right over the top. And every afternoon, we dig down, sit down, come down into this thing and scrunch down in our cave was dark. Somebody got a hold of a rag rug and put it on the floor, you know. And we'd sit on, on packing boxes. We had candles. We'd sit in our cave. It's a great feeling. And we'd each have a little cigar box full of our stuff. Knife, some string, flashlights, baseball, big fat one, you know, made out of tape. It's all there. We'd sit down in our cave. And then, this is one of the most subtle of all the variations on that urge. Each one of us began to dig his own antechamber. I'm going to dig off in this one. <laughs> dig down. Well, each guy, by the way, takes his own style, just like we do in life. Flick was a chicken or outer. So Flick, all he dug was just a little sort of a groove, a kind of a little niche where he'd sit in there. <laughs> he wanted to see the outside world, see, he wasn't going. Whereas Schwartz, Schwartz spent all of his life trying to get away from that rotten family of his. So he dug straight down and to the left. <laughs> he was heading for India, down and to the left, see. And I am digging just straight off and kind of vaguely slanting down. Even then, I was heading for hell. Digging down, 
You know, and the further you dig, this is the scary thing about it. For those of you who have never dug a good cave, when you first start digging, it's cold. And as you dig further, it gets hot and clammy in the cave. Very hot, strange. It's, it's sort of moist, and it forms a whole milieu and a whole world. And so over here is Bruner. Now, Bruner's father was a drunk. So Bruner is digging a little bar. <laughs> he's got a little square niche that he sits in there, you know, and he's got little bottles and stuff. Yeah, everybody has a little thing. And we carry candles. And every day after school, we come tearing for the cave. Boom, down we go into the cave with our candles and start digging. And then when we we'd get to the end of our little passageway, each one of us, we'd sit for a while. And I could hear Schwartz off in the distance digging. I'd hear Flick whimpering. <laughs> yeah, that's true, you know, I could hear all these kids. And then you, you, you have to keep in touch, you know, because man, in spite of the fact that he thinks he's an individual, is really a herd animal. He wants to get away from the herd, but he wants to be with the herd. That's where the big hang-up is. And so I'm hollering all the time, Hey, Flick! Hey, how are you, Flick? Hey, Shep! Hey, Schwartz! He's way down and gone. Hey, Bruner! Hey, Bruner! How about some coke? You got any coke in there, Bruner? Yeah! The great feeling, you know, we're all involved in this whole little world, and each day we are digging deeper going further and further and darker and darker. And you know what begins to happen as you dig a cave? You begin to get scared of the thing that you created. Every day we would get more and more of that strange little feeling of queasiness as we come into the cave because it's dark. It's spooky. It's underground. It's cold. And it was no longer the thing we made. It's just like civilization ourselves. You know, we built all this shlemu. <laughs> yeah, now we're scared of it. We all walk around, we talk about rotten society and beautiful us. But we made it. We made IBM. We made the whole scene. It's us. And so we're digging. And every day I'm digging deeper and deeper. And it's a great satisfaction. You know, you dig a little dirt, you go, uh, uh, uh. You take a handful of it, you pile it behind you. Uh, uh, uh. Take it. Pilot, and you you run across grubs. That is the secret fear. That down under the earth there is something. And you come across a grub, a little worm, you know, you pile it back. And then once in a while a lizard, you grab a pilot back. And one day, these are the ways that you get your onion peeled, Dad. One day I am digging deep in my hole and I can hear Schwartz way off in the distance and I hear Flick whimpering off somewhere. I can hear the sound of the shovels going and it's hot and it's cold and it's wet. It's everything all at once. And I'm digging in the dark with my little candle. Now this is a difficult story to tell. Right at this moment. Because this is a true traumatic experience. <laughs> and it ain't easy. <laughs> I have got my candle beside me, I am digging, I must have been 12 feet below the surface of the earth, at least. I got my shovel, and all of a sudden I see something dark ahead, in the earth. Now I had been digging up rocks for years out of that cave, something dark, I scratch, it does something funny, it's moving. It's 
moving. So I back away. And suddenly the earth just goes... There in front of me is a ball of snakes. Writhing snakes! They must have been that big, big ball of snakes. Snakes, they fell down all over, green snakes. There were thousands of them, a gigantic ball. I turned around and, whoa, how'd I go? And the instant I screamed, I could hear Schwartz and Flick and Bruner. Because they had been fearing something. Ah! Boom, out we go, all of us. What, what is it, Schwartz? What, what'd you find? What'd you find? Did you find a body? We were always afraid of a body somehow. Did you find a body? Said, no! Snakes! Ah! You know, I'm a good man with one snake. You know, kids always used to get garter snakes. But have you ever tried to deal with 145 of them? All of them in a gigantic, it was about the size of a big basketball, writhing and jumping up and down. I'm up on top now, Schwartz and Flick and Bruner, all of us. It's the snakes, darn it. Flick says, oh, no, come on. You know, he's the hip kid from the tavern, snakes. He's, he knows all those bums with the snakes, you know. Come on, snakes. There's no real snakes. Down. There's no snakes, snakes. Quick, give me my BB gun, quick. And Flick goes down in there with his flashlight, and all of a sudden, from under the bowels of the earth, you hear, wow! Out he comes. Believe me, he hasn't touched a drop since. Flick comes tearing out. Bruner's got to see. You know, that's the one thing about evil. We all got to see it. Nobody takes anybody's word for it. That's why each generation's got to have its own war. It's got to see it, see. Doesn't really believe it was good. Wasn't really fun. And so down in the hole goes Bruner. And then, of course, ah! out he comes, and all of us now are standing up on top of the cave. This is the monster we have created. It's full of snakes. And Flick says, Let's burn it up. Well, do you know what we did that night? We burnt our cave. It was covered with cardboard and wood, and we lit it. We burnt it up, and it fell in. We stood there and watched it burn. And the other kids came around, you know, because this was our cave. The other kids came around and says, Wow, your cave is burnt. But, yeah. Ours wasn't much of a cave. A rotten cave. We'll build another cave. The Bruner says, yeah. We sure will, yeah. Well, I had a strange experience a couple of, oh, it's been about two years ago. For the first time since I was a kid, I went back to that area. I wanted to see the neighborhood. You know how you go back to the old neighborhood once in a while? And I went back to the old neighborhood, and there were those vacant lots laying out there, back out of the steel mills and believe it or not right in the middle of this vacant lot there is a depression just a just a slight gentle depression it is what is left of our cave and if I told any of the natives around here you know we made a cave there one time they wouldn't believe it but I'm waiting for the day when an archaeologist is digging And he finds five little cigar boxes 
down in this place, you know. He's finding five little cigar boxes and a shovel. He finds these strange objects, which we will know are flashlights. He will find a tape baseball. It's this big, you know. And he will find the countless skeletons of snakes. And I can see him writing a treatise. A race of snake worshippers <laughs> was discovered in northern Indiana. A unique discovery. They seem to have a small wooden box fetish. Possibly grave ceremonial sacrificial gifts. I wonder how many things that we have in our great knowledge, you know, of, of archaeology of the world's past are based on things like that. Can you imagine the pharaoh, the first pharaoh that built a pyramid? He just says, you know, wouldn't it be fun if we put a lot of rocks up like that? <laughs> put a lot of rocks up there, you know. And the next thing you know, the whole crowd is piling rocks. And a whole philosophy, a whole shlemu of existence is developed. Well, I think, I must say, I feel that deep down inside of us are all these basic things. We're diggers, we're swimmers, we're carnivores. Yeah, and somewhere back in the past, we must have been, we must have been even airborne because we're still doing all these things in one way or another. We don't stop. Right now at this minute, there are guys that are 40 feet under the water somewhere in Bermuda, scuba drivers. They're swimming along with the, with the fish, with the dolphins. Somewhere, there's a guy whistling over the ground in his mercury. What strange lizard-like propulsion system is he creating there? Well, you know, I remember, again, these moments of terrible fear. The snake. How many of you are afraid of snakes? You aren't, huh? I would like you to discover a ball of snakes that weighed 400 pounds... 12 feet under the earth at the age of 10. You would develop some kind of fear of them. Speaking of snakes, what radio station is this? Come on! Come on! Well, let me say this. Oh, he bodies, Eddie's. At ease. Now, since I am surrounded by a group of people that are eating, drinking, a group of uh, freeloaders sitting around trying to stretch their $2 check through five hours, as I watch these people, I realize that there are other basic fears. Not only is there the fear of the snake, the fear of the under-earth, how many of you have strange fears secret fears, we all do, of food. You know, one of the earliest things that early man had to fear was poisoned food. He was always running into it, didn't know what it was. And so a man would eat a bad clam. Old Charlie. Charlie and Og had been sitting next to this antediluvian lake for a thousand years. They've been eating clams. And all of a sudden, Charlie sits there, cracks a clam. <laughs> Ooh, go go, ooh go go go, ooh, ah. 
He was the first Alka-Seltzer man. Well, now what happened then immediately? There began to grow up a myth that food has a secret and very sinister underground magic. Food is magic, you know. Have you noticed that almost all rituals of religious nature involve food? People go to wakes, they have food. People go to weddings, they have food. People go to bar mitzvahs, they have food. People go to the indoctrination of the kids into the new fraternity, they have food. Why? Why do we always eat? When we, we're, we're going out on a big date, a big ritualistic courtship thing, where do we go? Almost invariably. We go to some jazzy restaurant. Eat. Eat. It's magic. And like all magic, there is good magic and bad magic. How, I wonder how many guys' lives have been ruined by taking the chick, this very important chick, to the wrong restaurant. Yeah, you've got to be very careful about that. You know, you've been working on this for seven months. Everything is going hunky-dory. Boy, isn't that a great phrase? That's a 19th century phrase. It's going, it says it, you know, everything hunky-dory, boy. Everything is going great, you know, and you're going along, and you're just about to make that big move. You're going to ask her the crucial question. You take her to this restaurant, and she gets a bad chunk of liver. Have you ever seen a chick with her eyes spinning in two different directions? And, and who does she blame? Who forever is associated down in her stomach with nausea? Clarence. He doesn't know why. Either does she. I wonder if guys have married the wrong chick. Because they've gone to this restaurant and they've, got, they've gotten him up with some fantastic piece of roast duck with cherries jubilee all over. And he eats this, and, oh, boy, holy smokes. And the next thing you know, it's Foreversville. In the euphoria of a fantastic meal, he has plighted his troth, and 400 years later, he's still eating duck. And she keeps saying, well, you remember, it was very important to us. Yes. Oh, and I'm curious about how much of our magic is associated with food and our fears. How many people are striking out tonight right here in the, in the limelight in Greenwich Village because they ordered a rare hamburger and it came looking like a small chunk of marble? <laughs> and who gets blamed? You know, I, I don't think women ever have that. You know, men are constantly striking out this way. You take them to some giant restaurant, $30 the check, and it's a rotten meal. And somehow you feel guilty. You really do. And women, I can see all of them say, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Ask the man who's with you. He feels guilty. He takes you to a show. He spends $30 on a pair of tickets. You get into the show, and Mary Martin starts to holler. <laughs> Ethel Merman is yelling, I love you! I love you! And the chick, you can see the chick, she's sort of going... <clears throat> <clears throat> And you say, isn't it? Aren't we having a good time, Clara? <laughs> and the house is half empty. You hear people coughing all around you. And you say, oh. And then you figure, well, I'm going to make a comeback. Wait till we get to the four whoopies. Wait till she tries that, boy, that Alaska Supreme. Wait. Wait till she gets the king crab there. 
And he keeps saying in the middle of the second act, baby, let's split on this crummy show. What do you say, huh? He is showing he is above this stuff. Let's let's wait. Let's get over to, to the four whoopies. King crab, baby. Have you ever had it? No. He says, oh, boy. <laughs> what? You see, king crab is a special kind of crab that comes from Alaska, and they dip it in butter. It's magnificent. The way they serve it at the four whoopies with just a touch of oregano, just a little rare Alsatian wine. <laughs> and she's so... And a half an hour later, they're sitting in the four whoopies. And you know that terrible feeling of being the only one who's come to the restaurant? <laughs> You're sitting there, this vast expanse of tables, and the waiters are all standing around. They come over with the menu. And you say, that's all right. We're having King Crab Supreme. He says, oh, what, what is that, Masood? King Crab Supreme. He says, we, we, we don't serve King Crab Supreme. <laughs> well, uh, uh, oh, oh, and he immediately realizes it's the lobster net he was talking about. And here he is in the four whoopies. And it's all written in Belgian. <laughs> and what's worse, the chick knows the language. She says, I'll order. Oh, the, the, the restaurant defeat is a terrible thing for a man. And I, I suspect that some of our basic fears are connected with food. And only once in my life has it ever come to pass where I really had the thing happen to me that we all fear deep down in our guts. I mean, just like Charlie sitting there. After that, Charlie thought twice about clams. And he's, ever since that time, he's been, you know. I am driving along a highway, and I'm with a girl. And this is an important girl. I've got my Ford all shined up. I'm 17 years old. The sun is shining. It is springtime. Life is beautiful. Life is one giant cake of Fleischmann's yeast. And it's curing my pimples. Oh, it's... There's a pimple, man. It's fantastic. I am sailing along a thousand miles above the surface of the earth. And we are out in the country. You know, with the top down, my little Ford convertible. You know that great feeling? That's an American feeling, by the way. It's part of the affluent society. We don't recognize this. But very few young men in the world know the feeling of going out on a Saturday afternoon with a girl in their own Ford convertible with the top down, with the sun shining, with some dough in the pocket, and with the horizons going on and on and on. This is America, really. And so I'm driving. Oh, gee, the radio's going, you know. The, the stuff is coming out. I'm feeling great. And Dorothy's sitting next to me. She looks like she's made out of Dresden, China. You know those little lamps they make? With the 18th century costumes, there is Dorothy sitting next to me. We're driving, driving, driving. And we came to that mecca of all American drivers, the drive-in. Now, you don't have drive-ins here in the East like they have out in the Midwest because they really drive out there. The drive-in is like the Taj Mahal. It is the palace. It's the Empire State Building. It is everything. 
and people drive for miles on a Saturday afternoon just to go to the drive-in to have a, a black cow. You know what is it, a black cow? This is root beer with chocolate ice cream in it. It's great. That's a black cow. Yeah, they order foot-long hot dogs with flags sticking out of them. They really do. They have flags, little Bolivian flags all over you. Sit there and eat these things. You drink root beer. And these chicks go back and forth. You know, the car hops. This is a, this is a Midwestern institution. They have car hops dressed in togas, dressed in football suits. And I am sitting there with Dorothy. Now, wait a minute. Wait till you hear what happens. Oh, boy. I hope all of you have eaten. You all okay? Well, it's hot. And so we drive, we sit. I toot the horn, you know, boop! And this chick comes up. Well, look, babe. I look at the sun up there. That arching blue sky. I said, what do you have, Dorothy? And she says, I'll have, uh... Do you have a bottle of, uh, whoopee? This, by the way, is a popular drink. I cannot use their name, and when you hear the story, you'll know why. She says, can I have a bottle of whoopee? And the girl says, we only got fountain whoopee. She says, oh, well, I'll have a bottle of Wowie then. And she says, okay, you have a, one bottle of Wowie. What else you have? I'll have a foot-long hot dog. And uh, that's it. And I said, well, right, bring me a cheeseburger and a black cow. And don't forget, bring her that bottle of Yowie ice cold. Thumbs up. And a chick goes away. Ten minutes later, she comes back with a tray. How many of you, by the way, have ever rolled up your window with a tray <laughs> and caught a double banana split on your sport coat? <laughs> Great moments. These are American moments. And so, so I'm sitting there in the front seat of the car. Dorothy's sitting there in the front seat of the car next to me. She gets her bottle of Yowie. She's sipping it, eating the hot dog. I'm eating my gigantic, beautiful cheeseburger. I'm a real cheeseburger nut. I'm drinking the root beer, black cow. Sun is beating down. The music is playing, you know, the jukebox. And the cars are coming in and going. And I'm sitting like this. And Dorothy's got this bottle of Yowie. By the way, a fantastically world-known drink. She's got her bottle of Yowie. And over here, I have, you see, my dashboard was a polished dashboard. It reflected light. This is important. I suddenly begin to see something strange about her bottle of Yowie. I'm looking at it. It's a sort of cloudiness. And she's drinking it away. We're talking. And she's falling in love with me. <laughs> you know that great moment, that great feeling, friends, men, when you figure the chick is really going, you know? You're, you've got your cute look on. Well, all men work on their cute look. Some guys take their glasses off to get their cute look. Other guys put their glasses on to get their cute look. <laughs> You know, and it's a kind of look around the eyes, sort of like this. <laughs> it's a kind of cute look, you know. And, and I could see it's working. 
And then I begin to also see something with that yaoi. And she has drunk possibly a half of it. It's right down, you know, the bottle. She's going like this. And I say, Dorothy, can I have a sip of your yaoi? She says, yes, of course. I take the bottle of yaoi. At the bottom of the bottle, this much, this much of it is filled with very deceased houseflies. The whole bottle. What a moral dilemma. Do you tell her? Do you say, Dorothy, look at the flies! Or do you say, Dorothy, let me finish your yaoi. <laughs> Holy smokes, and if you think I'm making this story up, I'll tell you, I have not gotten over my sick yet. And I can see it, boy, if you've ever looked at a bottle of yaoi through the sun, with that beautiful sun shining down through it, and you see them, they sort of... Even when they're dead, they fly, you know. <laughs> Millions of them. Don't ask me how they got there. I don't know. Somebody in the Yowie plant must have just been going like this. You know? <laughs> I'll show those bums. <laughs> Old Bullard ain't going to push me around. Or wait till they get this one. Well, guess who scored big with it? Boy, oh boy, I'm telling you, I sat there for a full, it was like a full five minutes, you know, your life hangs in the balance, and I could feel my cheeseburger. My cheeseburger was growing feet, and it just instantly, it just, you know, you cannot control your body, you know that, don't you? They say in moments of great stress in the Army, fantastic things happen to the human body, unbelievable things. And there I was, and all of a sudden, without any warning, I just go, <laughs> all over my car, oh, my new gray flannel slacks, <laughs> and it's shuddering. <laughs> I was having what we call euphemistically in Indiana, the, the shuddering heaves, <laughs> which means that even your feet are involved, you know. <laughs> Dorothy says, what's the matter? What do you say? Look, baby. I said, oh, nothing, nothing. It uh, must be something I ate. Boy, uh, uh, and, and there was stuff all over the floor I hadn't eaten for months. There was turkey from Thanksgiving. And this is July, by the way. Well, I sat there with that bottle. I didn't know what to do. It's going all over. Boom! More goes out on the side of the car, and I say, Dorothy, hey, Dorothy, do you mind if I clean the side of the car off? I washed the side of my car off with what was left of the, of the Yowie. How about that for never stopping, boy? Let's hear it. What a recovery. What a recovery, man. I'll tell you, the American GI, well, 
We drive back and I am white. I am green. I'm purple. And I keep looking at this chick, this beautiful girl sitting next to me, and she's feeling great. She's feeling beautiful. And I began to realize the truth of that old slogan, in ignorance, dad, there is bliss. I'll tell you, in ignorance, there is bliss. And I wonder how many of us have eaten wild stuff, old cigar butts, old dish rags, without knowing anything about it, you know? And she's sitting there next to me, and all I can see is this beautiful girl with dead flies inside. <laughs> dead flies, you know, she suddenly looked like a spider. <laughs> with these two beady eyes, you know. Well, I'm telling you, I drove home. Oh, it was an awful time. I, I tell you, I drove home, and, and, and we got back to her house, and she says, well, are we going to go out to play tennis? <laughs> tennis? With, with a girl with a housefly, you know, the whole bit. Boy, I'll tell you, talk about sick chicks. And I said, no, no, I, I'm sorry. I'm just not feeling well. And so I go home, I come up to the house, and my mother is sitting on the front porch. And you know how mothers are? The one thing, you know, that's a funny thing. I always hear it said about Jewish mothers. I don't believe that this is a Jewish mother thing. I think all mothers are hung on eating. My mother certainly was a nut about eating. And there I am, I'm white. I come up to the house. I'm thinking of the flies. Oh, I'm thinking of all the bottles of Yowie I have drunk in my past. You know, I'm beginning to see my feet look like spider feet. You know? <laughs> Terrible scene. And I get up, my mother immediately says, we've got red cabbage tonight. Red cabbage was considered my favorite dish. I have not outgrown it with my mother yet. Well, you know, I'll tell you, it's a, it's, a, it's a strange thing. To this very day, whenever I get a bottle of anything, I hold it up. <laughs> I really do. It's, a, it's, an ancient, it's an ancient thing that I have with me. I just hold it up like that. It's just instinctive. And every time I do, I feel sick. <laughs> Down it goes, you know. I'm hoping one day... Again, as I go up like that, I see a pair of beady eyes looking out. Well, I think that this problem with food, this secret thing, goes back so far into our past that hardly any of us can ever possibly know when. How many of you in this crowd were in the Army? Well, let me tell you a story about food in the Army. You know, you know the traditional, the traditional bit about food in the army is that the food is bad, forget it. I say most guys ate better in the army than they ever ate in their lives. Absolutely. And, and, and it's sort of traditional, you know, to gripe about it. And here they're griping, they got the stuff piled up, they're eating. But one time, in the middle of, the, in the middle of my army tenure, we hit on a period where we had absolutely nothing to eat but K-rations. You know what a K-ration is like? It looks like a big box of... Well, the box really is about the size of the, of the big family box of Cracker Jack. 
It's covered with brown, thick wax paper. And you open this thing up, and it's got little flat cookies in it. It's got a can of corned beef hash, usually. It's got a stick of gum. It's got a little thing of cigarettes. And it's got a little package. Now, this is the secret thing. In the package is one of three things. It's a little silver envelope. You know, this would make, by the way, a great sequence for one of the army, one of the army shows on television. There's a little tinfoil envelope containing either one chocolate, which you mix with hot water in your helmet, you know, drink it, or in your canteen cup, you drink it. Insoluble coffee. <laughs> and I mean insoluble coffee. You break it in, you know, and you, you chew it when you drink it. And you also get one other thing. You get an envelope with a strange yellow powder, which is known in the Army as battery acid, also known as the yellow peril, also known as the green death. This stuff was purportedly lemonade. And so guys used to sit, believe me, in the middle of a battle. Here they're sitting, see, three guys in a foxhole. Now they got their K rations. It's not marked on the outside which one they're getting. The shells are going over, the mortars are landing, the planes are whistling past, the three of them are busting out their K rations. And without, without a word, they start throwing half dollars into the ring. The guy that gets the chocolate wins the pot. They're betting on that. The guy that gets the battery acid is a horse's you-know-what. <laughs> that was the phrase in the Army. And whenever, whenever, a, whenever an outfit would decamp from bivouac, there would be the ground would be covered with these envelopes, untouched of battery acid. Now, you got the scene? Okay. You got it. Guys used to try everything. Sometimes they'd save the envelopes. They'd get about 50 of them, see? They'd get chocolate, they'd get, they'd get cocoa, they'd get coffee, they'd get battery acid. Then they'd try mixing them. All three. Boom! You know. Ah! You know, I remember one guy, I'll tell you, I remember one guy in the middle of a, of a wild scene. He says, watch. He mixes it. And the shells are going. He goes, ah! 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 Mr. Hyde! <laughs> what a bit. Well, we got, you know, everybody during, the, during, his, during a period when you're eating cardboard begins to develop strange, very elusive hungers because food is associated with our body. It's, it's mystical. You never know what you're going to want. After you ha I'll bet there isn't one guy in this crowd, one woman in this crowd, who, if I put you on, let's say, uh, pablum for one month, solid, I'll bet you could not tell me what food you would develop an insane taste for. You just couldn't. And you think it's your favorite dish. It wouldn't be. It is not lobster. <laughs> She's a lobster type, I can tell. Very expensive girl. No, it is not your favorite. It's some nutty thing. You develop a taste like, say, for raisin bread. Yeah, some nutty thing. You don't want really never eat raisin bread. All of a sudden, you're gonna raisin bread. Raisin bread. All the time you walk around, you see raisins, raisin bread. And you keep saying, "Well, I don't like raisin bread." Raisin bread. I have seen guys go on raisin bread binges, 
from one end of town to the next. Everyone thinks the first thing a guy does when he hits town is look for a girl. I've known guys that look for raisin bread. Why? I don't know. You just got a thing. Well, here we are, seven weeks without anything to eat except K-rations and hot water. And all the fantasies began to form. And without any warning, the entire company developed one insane thing. The one thing they wanted more than anything else. And believe me, back home, I never wanted this much. I didn't dig it much. Eggs. An egg. This is the thing we all get. You know, you get eggs, two for 30 cents, you know, nothing. Eggs are nothing. But eggs. And you could see them scrambled, fried. Every possible way, eggs, eggs. Get the eggs, eggs. Why? I don't know why eggs. And then six weeks later, the sergeant came up over the hill and he says, they're bringing up supplies. We're having fresh food. Get out your mess kits. The field kitchen's going to be here in 15 minutes. We got 17 cases of eggs. I mean, eggs with shells, real eggs. And everybody, boom, like mad. We're all standing in line. And these cooks, I never saw a sight in my life like it. The cooks got the, the field kitchen out. They've got the, you know, the fires that go under the primus stoves. They've got those flat those flat frying pans and they are busting eggs boom 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 you ought to see the army bust eggs boy it's great and you could see them frying and the guys are the whole company company k is lined up there watching and they're frying them some guys are scrambling other guys are throwing them into boil eggs eggs cases of them and with that the first cook hollers, okay, line up, let's go. Boom, like that. Well, have you ever gotten all egged up? I swear to God, there wasn't a man in that company that did not eat less than 15 dozen eggs. Back, the line was continuous. You're eating as you're walking. Back to the end of the line. Give me more. Eating, 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 eating. Eggs, eggs, eggs. Scrambled, fried, boiled, raw. Give me the shells. Eggs, 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 eggs all over the place. And then it was all over, the debauch. The field kitchen packed up. These guys had delivered the hot food. They said, okay, so long, fellas. And away went the trucks. It was glory. It was unbelievable. And everybody goes back to the company area, bring their carbines, and sit down, a helmet, and they begin to dream of the old days. Ten minutes ago. <laughs> they begin to dream of fried eggs and scrambled eggs. They begin to dream of boiled eggs. And everyone sat there. There was a deep silence hung over the company. Even the first sergeant was quiet. His fangs were blunted. The captain was asleep in his hole. The couple... Well, do you know to this very day, 
I cannot sit down to breakfast without having a taste for eggs. Believe me, there is something sinister about an egg. And I come in, you know, and the, and the girl comes up. I want to order waffles just once. Just once I want to say, bring me pancakes. Wheaties with Super G. You know, I form it inside. I, I want to say, uh, bring me uh, cheese Danish. But what comes out? Eggs! Every time I say, give me eggs, eggs. They think I'm sick, you know. I got some Oedipus complex or who knows what, you know. All I can remember is Company K. And out there in the darkness, way out in, the, in America somewhere, there are 238 guys who got the same hang-up. The egg hang-up. And I propose right now at this minute, just for me, I don't ask much of you, I think just once we ought to give the lowly egg of which we all have sprung from, we ought to give the lowly egg one round of applause. Hooray for the eggs! Hooray! Hooray! Come on, let's do it! Come on! All right, now wait a minute. Now wait a minute, where would we all be if it weren't for the egg? That's right, nowhere. How many of you, how many of you for that reason hate the egg? <laughs> I think a lot of guys hate eggs for that very reason. You know, speaking of, of giving things the applause that they don't, that they never get, every day of the year I walk down 34th Street and up 6th Avenue and I see the Empire State Building. Somewhere out in the darkness now, maybe 15, 20 blocks north of us, that big old fat Empire State Building is just standing there. <laughs> Looking down on all of us. And I think it's one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen. It's an ugly, beautiful building. Do you have that feeling? Let's give the Empire State Building a hand. Yay! Hooray, Empire State Building! Right. E-M-P-I-R-E! 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 Empire, Empire, Empire State! All right, friends. We have come to you from the limelight in Greenwich Village, in the heart of friendly old Empire State, New York City. And what is the slogan of New York? Excelsior! We'll be back next week. This is WOR Radio, your station for news.